This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Mo Amir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Sherlock Knives is it, so I'll hurry up on it. This is Van Color. Today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a father of five, a feat of fecundity in itself. He is an entrepreneur whose Vancouver-based company designs and develops mobile games for clients like Lego, American Express, Pokemon, and Facebook. He has also founded two registered nonprofit associations, Abundant Housing Vancouver and Abundant Transit BC. He is running for Vancouver City Council as an independent although I'm sure many parties were hoping to attach his high profile to their slate. He is going to bring it home for this podcast in terms of our election candidate interviews. You might know him from his blog, Five Kids, One Condo. You might know him as Bus Dad. He is the very charming Adrian Crook. Adrian, how are you? (laughs) That's like the best intro I've ever had. Uh, Thanks a lot, Mo, for having me. Uh, Um, You know, all I did was state facts. (laughs) So. But it's how you stated them. It's like, yeah, it's coming on an award show or something. My, my pleasure. I'm really happy to have you on. First things first, though, I got to ask you right off the bat. Where do you get your hubris, Adrian, to run <laughs> for public office with the last name that you have? Oh, I know. Most people would have taken that as a bad omen, but you're running with it. And I commend you for that, uh, not only for stepping up and running, but for running with your last name. Oh, Amazing. Totally. I would say like a good... 10% of the comments I get on my Facebook are like, well, really sorry about the last name, bud. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know, it caught your eye, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but my father was actually a career VPD uh, homicide detective. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, so he was Detective Crook for years and years. Wow. So if he can do a job like that. Yeah. <laughs> with sh- that last name. Did he have a, like a middle name like Catching? Mm. Catching Crooks? No, not at all. Nothing, <laughs> nothing quite that catchy, no pun intended, but yeah. Fair enough. Well, one thing I do want to bring up, a little more serious, but for the sake of good faith, uh, it's no secret that I've been very vocal, perhaps to my own detriment, about a certain mayoral candidate, one that you've been affiliated with from time to time. And, uh, you know, you might have caught unfairly, caught some crossfire in that from me. I don't think I've ever gone personal. I don't think I've ever been unfair, but I did do a quick scan of my tweets in particular. (laughs) I don't think I ever slammed you. I don't think so. But (laughs) if you had rejected my invitation to be here today on those grounds, I totally would have understood. So I just want to take this time to publicly extend my apologies to you if you had ever been caught in that crossfire. Uh, I've heard nothing nothing but good things about you across the political spectrum. Uh, Sometimes we all get a little passionate on social media. Yeah. But uh, I just want to say that you being here, I think, really reflects quite highly on your character. Oh. And it's really cool that two people who may disagree on certain issues, may disagree on the credibility of a certain mayoral candidate, can still sit in a friendly setting and have a chat. So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, geez. Wow. Thanks, Mo. Um, I mean, that sort of speaks to the independent thing as well. I don't want to, like, uh, subvert any line of questioning you might have around <laughs> independent <laughs> stuff. But, I mean... I think a big 
sort of a big plus of being an independent, I know this from talking to some of the other independents as well, is your ability to form opinions on people based purely on their own merit and mm-hmm. not any sort of party affiliation and just the, you know, the credibility of their ideas, really. So... Um, so that's that's kind of like uh, again I don't want to steal your line of questioning but that that's sort of a big motivating factor behind why I ultimately chose to run independently is so I could uh, so I could support good ideas regardless of um, the party that was putting them forward. Sure, and I appreciate that, and we're going to get into that. Um, but first, I want to know like a lot of people know you as the single dad with five kids in Yale Town, and it's definitely an interesting perspective on urban living, especially in this city. So I want to know, what was the impetus to start the Five Kids, One Condo blog? Mm-hmm. How did this come about? Uh, let's see. So in about 2013, I got uh, divorced or separated, the precursor to divorce. I'm divorced now. And uh, we were moving at the time. We were moving back from Mexico. We, were, we had lived there for a few years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, like on the Caribbean side. I'm a consultant, so we thought we'd try that and yeah. see if that made the marriage last longer. It didn't, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, we found each other, obviously. Uh, places to live. And mm-hmm. and at first I considered um, going back to where we had previously had a house uh, before we moved to Mexico, which is North Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. a nice area in North Vancouver. Um, but then I really started to think like, and get back in touch with my values because, uh, you know, when you're married, you sort of sometimes lose that a little bit. You mm. kind of, you know, lose touch of who you are. And, um, and it really occurred to me that what I wanted to do was try to raise the kids in a city environment. And I had lived in downtown Vancouver lots over my life and mm-hmm. lived in other urban environments too, like L.A. and Houston, uh, Toronto, Montreal, uh, places like that. Mm. So I had a good sampling of urbanism. Sure. And uh, and I guess I wanted to document that process because I had a feeling that if I didn't, people would just sort of think it was just, oh, this guy just wants to party. You know, like he, yeah. uh, he wants to go to bars every night and he's asking his kids to live downtown because he just wants to get wasted and stumble home. And it's like, no, no, that's not why I'm doing this. There are very valid reasons why I'm doing this. And that's, I think I started that blog. I probably had the idea to start it in 2013. was so mired in all the divorce stuff as anybody who's ever been divorced knows, It's a, especially with kids, there's a lot to go through. Um, but it, so it wasn't until 2014, I think, late 2014, that I started that blog, and and uh, now I, geez, I don't write nearly as many articles as I should for it. But I think it has like, you know, about a half a million people a year or so reading it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty not, big. Yeah, it's not not huge, but not small either. So kind of fun. No, fair enough. I, I guess um, you, you know when you started it, it sounds like it was more of a lifestyle <laughs> sort of blog that you were highlighting how you could make parenthood work in this urban city environment, right? Yeah. Did you ever have any thoughts when you started it, not necessarily to run for office, but Mm. this idea of I'm going to highlight issues that maybe will come into the the public consciousness in terms of either policy or just how we look at things? No. I wish I was that strategic. (laughs) I mean, in some aspects of my life, I definitely am. But I think it sort of I naturally lit upon those issues because those are the biggest issues, obviously, in people's lives, like mm-hmm. where we live, how we get around the region, uh, whether or not we're sort of staying fit and active, uh, you know, these sort of yeah. a- aspects of urbanism, um, you know, arts and culture, uh, um, safety, uh, all that kind of stuff uh, just is, are things that I talked about because they were meaningful and important to me. And I saw them as uh, the pluses mostly of living downtown. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't have a car. I haven't had a car for a few years now. Um, so we get around by 
public transit or by foot or by bike. And mm-hmm. um, so you just did a blog about that and why that's uh, why data shows that that's fantastic for you know whatever kids. Uh, physical health, let's say, or sure. from a safety perspective in the case of not putting them in a car every day. And yeah. so you, you just sort of, it, I would use it as a reason to kind of do a bunch of research on a particular topic. So I had this kind of, you know, if I thought this might be the case, then I'd go and, and dig in and try to support that with evidence. And then I'd turn it into a blog post. And it was a way of sort of helping me crystallize even my own thoughts on mm-hmm. the issues. They're like little tiny homework projects for yourself as an adult, you know? Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's actually one of the, when you look at any sort of creative endeavor, um, a lot of it becomes just about learning yourself as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to like teach other people or, or whatever. It's mostly because you're interested in a topic and, yeah. uh, publicly presenting it to the world or putting it out there is is a good way to to ensure that you really go in depth on the, the topic. Oh, absolutely. Right? And like I said, like you know, over the course of that marriage uh, that I had, uh, you know, you make a bunch of compromises and sometimes you lose touch with kind of who you are and sure. what values you might have. So this was also another way of reconnecting with that. Like are these things I actually believe? Like uh, you know, are they substantiated by anything in particular, like de- you know, data or evidence, uh, am I ready to publicly proclaim that these are things that I believe in? And the c- process of running for office, I was having a conversation with someone the other night about this exact same thing that mm. they believe, like I do, that it's a valuable process to get you as a person to commit to certain things. Absolutely, you, know, you have to go through this filtering process in your head and go, does this position I'm taking on this particular issue? actually makes sense or Mm -hmm. is it just a bunch of bias or a bunch of bad information that I've accumulated over the years and now I'm just spouting it off you know because now you're putting your good name beside it yeah hopefully (laughs) hopefully good name if it's crook maybe not so much (laughs) now you're also known as bus dad Mm. Uh, something about you letting your kids ride the bus on their own which caught fire in the news and created this big debate what's what's the story behind you being bus dad yeah that's funny uh, so in about, oh, my years are starting to blend together, but I think it was um, November of 2015. Actually, you know, the weird thing is I first started taking the bus. The very first bus trip I ever took with the kids to and from their school was October 5th. This day we're recording right now, oh, three cool. three years ago. Facebook reminded me of that. Thank you, Facebook. <laughs> um, but we didn't sell the car until like about a month later. But okay. So I spent a couple years essentially training the kids to take the bus. They take it from um, my house in Yaletown, my condo in Yaletown, up to their school in North Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's like a short five-minute bus ride to a downtown um, intersection and then a 30-minute, let's say, bus ride from mm-hmm. there, and it drops them off right in front of their school. It's... You know, it's serendipi- serendipitously, it's actually quite direct uh, yeah. in that regard. So I did uh, that for a couple of years with them, sort of training them. And then, um, let me see, I'm, I would say the spring of uh, last year, boy, time is flying. Mm-hmm. Um, then I started to let them do it on their own, yeah. basically. Uh, these were the four oldest ones. Okay. Um, so not, not the youngest one at the time, because he would have been still in uh, like junior K or something like okay. that. Okay. Uh, and then it wasn't very long. It was about a month later I got a voicemail from the Ministry of Children and Family Development. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, like as a parent and having never, ever had any dealings with 
MCFD, yeah. um, you just kind of like you freeze. Yeah. You're, you're like, oh my goodness, what have I done to somehow draw the attention of the MCFD? So I had to wait like a whole weekend wondering what that was because they wouldn't meet with me till the Monday. Hmm. But it, uh, they were like, well, you know, you've it's come to our attention that you let your kids ride the bus alone. Hmm. Uh, there was no specific incident. It's not like the kids had seized the wheel of the bus and driven it off the road sure. or anything. Uh, but they said they were going to investigate and so on. So they did. They talked to the kids. They talked to some of my character references. Uh, I believe people at the school, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And a couple months later, sort of hauled me into their office on Broadway and said, uh, ultimately, this can't go on anymore. No child uh, under 10 can be left alone for any amount of time anywhere, inside or outside of the house, let alone on a bus. Is this uh, this is legal? This no, is law, no, or? that's the confusing part, right? So the way they had written when they put this in a letter, they wrote it to me and and wrote it like it was essentially law. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote, it literally said no child, blah blah blah. But then when pressed on it, they sort of walked that back a little bit, in, and then we actually had them do an internal review of that that took place in the early portion of this year. Yeah, and that review did say a number of things that was you know along the lines of it's, it was overly broad and too restrictive given this family's uh, you know. Um, makeup and so on. So it essentially said that, you know, if you're under 10, you can't do anything anytime, anywhere alone. Mm -hmm. So even crossing the street to go to 7-Eleven, which a lot of my kids had done for a long time, you know, you do that as a kid, you go to the corner store or whatever. Especially in a suburban environment, you have a lot more freedom than I think you would think in an urban environment. You're right. And that was actually when I had that in-person meeting with them, that was a a bit of a theme. Like they had said uh, in that in-person meeting, well, if you were in a you know a townhouse complex in the suburbs, we would be okay with them being alone because hmm. people are sort of everyone's keeping an eye out, you know. And you're right. like, right, interesting. Uh, okay, but then I could never get them to put that in print. They kind of walked it right back to doesn't matter anywhere, you know, under ten, no no go sort of thing. Yeah. So, so I'm only back to taking or letting those kids take the bus on their own now because one of them is over 12. Oh, so that's okay. like the babysitting gotcha. age. Yeah. But if he's like sick one day, you know, and can't go, then mm-hmm. even though my 11-year-old girl who's probably more mature than the 12-year-old <laughs> boy, uh, you know, is the present, it wouldn't matter. So, yeah. you know, I've uh, I crowdfunded about $45,000 for a legal challenge. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, to cool. that issue. It was covered really widely when I uh, sort of eventually blogged about it in um, September of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were you know, on the front pages of every major newspaper and yeah. national newspaper, it was quite something. It was really made life very, uh, diff- I would say difficult. I'll, I'll go ahead and say difficult. Sure, yeah. Um, but, you know, like you don't write a piece like that and hope that it's kept secret. You obviously, yeah. I obviously wrote it for a reason to get the attention to the issue. Yeah. And all the response was super positive. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I... Like you get, you know, the odd hater out there, but like really 99% of the the parents and people writing to me were just overwhelmingly supportive. I know um, uh, John Woodward, the CTV reporter, FOI'd all the correspondence that the ministry had received and then slid it to me and said, he said he had scanned through it. I never did scan through it, but he said he scanned through it and it was all positive as well. So, uh, so yeah, now we're on the verge of filing a uh, like a Supreme Court, BC Supreme Court challenge on that issue. And Interesting. I should have some news on that in the next week or so. Oh, in the next week, okay. Yeah, so I know. Maybe by the time this this comes out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So we're just finalizing that. I and I do find it interesting, and I, and I again I want to emphasize the point that you said. You know, you you'd kind of been training them 
for about two years. Oh my goodness. You, doc- you yeah. documented the process. It's not like you just threw some change at them and we're like, okay, no. go take the bus, figure it out, kids. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, and the ministry, even in that meeting, said, we know this isn't a case of neglect. Like, yeah. we know this is your parenting philosophy. Yeah. So if it's not a case of neglect, and I mean, I've, I obviously, at the beginning of that whole two years, I checked with Translink, made sure there was no you know age at which they could, mm. and there's not. It's up to the parent with Translink. And there had been no incident either. So no yeah. neglect, no incident, no problem with the transit operator. That should have been it. You yeah. Know? So, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, hopefully we can uh, push back a little, not just for the um, the transit side of things, but just the idea that kids' independence somehow is like a binary light switch that at age 10 just... Right. There you go. You're ready. Because I have five of them, and I can tell you they all have different ages at which they <laughs> mature, right? But the, even the ministry doesn't acknowledge that. So it's yeah. interesting. Fair enough. Yeah. I guess this brings me to my, my next question. Um, we've sort of already highlighted the... Uh, the different ways that we look at suburban living versus urban living. So I'm curious, how do you adapt to urban living with five kids? I mean, five kids sounds like a challenge on its own, but what are the different challenges in terms of raising children in an urban environment? And that's so different now that uh, my oldest is 12. So it's 12, 11, 11 as of Saturday, actually. So I'm rounding her up. But 12, 11, 10, 8, and 6. Uh, and it's boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. So yeah. Like, I've got a real great random sampling. <laughs> if you need like video game testing focus groups, yeah. if you need any sort of like yeah awesome. study group, I've got them all. Um, so, But it, that experience has changed so much uh, as they've aged. Uh, like I remember when I was married and we were living in North Vancouver, we, you know, childcare is the issue, of course, because they were all m- so much younger. Yeah. And we had to start a uh, early childhood education center, like basically a, a, a group licensed daycare center in the ground floor of our house. Um, with two ECEs and the whole shebang. Wow. And that's how we, you know, we had six paying um, clients, six kids, and then two of our own kids in there. And that hmm. was, you know, I mean, that's a ridiculous level of sort of apparatus to set up to get childcare. But sure. in this city, if you're raising kids downtown, childcare is exorbitantly expensive if you can find it at all. Yeah. Um, so I would say that. That's zero to five, like until they get into kindergarten, boy, that, you know, that's the hardest time, I think, for parents to stay downtown mm-hmm. unless they're just going to take their job off for five years and right. take care of their kid, which, at, you know, some of the rates like uh, per month for childcare, sometimes it pays to do that in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that I'm past that, I'm into a different phase. And now some of my kids are over that magic ministry age of 10. Um, and actually, the even the, the middle one is about to be over 10 in the month of October, because um, they have, what do they call those, like Irish twins when they're born a year apart, but in the same month. They're... Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like, so I got two birthdays this month. But then I'll have three out of five kids that can essentially do whatever they want. I mean, most of them want to play Fortnite all the time. So, sure. you know, still, but they can like go to movies, they can go to the park and that changes so much, right? Because yeah. like last, all last winter when we were essentially on lockdown, thanks to this, uh, the ministry stuff, when I didn't have a 12-year-old and uh, I just had a couple kids that were over 10, mm-hmm. um, it was like, you know, that game where, or that sort of riddle where it's like, you got a chicken, a bag of seed and a fox and you got to get it across the river. Like that's what our <laughs> life was like when it's like, I got to figure out how to get something from the store. <laughs> But I can't go and leave you here. Yeah. But you can go without me as long as I stay here. It was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so weird. So we spent a lot of time um, 
indoors, sadly, the probably the most time we've ever spent indoors last mm. winter, which was kind of a drag. Yeah, fair <laughs> but enough. Normally, you can use the city, you know, especially as these kids get older and older, it almost becomes easier because, you know, now my two oldest uh, have the whole city at their disposal. They're yeah. a block away from the Central Library. Uh, I've got my oldest daughter tonight headed to the movies with a couple friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like if I was in the suburbs, I'd be driving them. I'd be chaperoning exactly. them everywhere. Yeah. And now that they've lived here for some time, you know, Five they're, years. they're familiar yeah. with everything, right? Yeah. So it's it makes great. a big difference. It's a distributed backyard, basically, is what the city is. Yeah. You know? like interesting. Interesting. You don't have you a little, yeah. yeah. You don't have a little fence around your little piece. It's just, it's spread out everywhere and you get to access it and you don't have to maintain it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big plus. Well, I mean, if you, your taxes maintain it. <laughs> totally. Details. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into your, your candidacy. That's, that's really why you're here. Uh, but I do appreciate the background on, uh, on the five kids and, and you being bus dad. <laughs> Why are you running in this election? Well, so when I got, uh, let's back this up even further. So I've been in video games now, um, video game design and development for 24 years. Wow. Like I literally started at EA when I was 19. Wow. I know. It's ridiculous. And so when I started that Five Kids One Condo blog, it was a chance to dive into a subject matter that I was, quite frankly, more interested in than video games. Mm. You know, like my interest level in video games was quite different at 19 than what it is, you know, today at whatever my age is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing the math. So no, whatever. A few. Hopefully yeah. no one else does. But um, uh, so that's what I use that blog for, you know, among other things, was um, uh, an excuse to go to all these really cool, nerdy, civic kind of things that I was really keen on um, and meet a lot of people uh, that had been involved in politics or were currently involved in politics or they were involved in uh, building our city in various uh, senses like architects and designers and and just really learn why certain decisions had been made and how, you know, that evolved over time. And and then when I, that, I guess that led me to be involved with a group of people that we eventually um, all co-founded Abundant Housing Vancouver, mm-hmm. which is the housing advocacy group you mentioned at the top. Uh, and then later on, Abundant Transit BC, sort of from a similar group of people, because housing and transit are so connected. Every housing choice is a transportation choice. Sure. So, Yeah. So I think it's been this kind of natural progression where I've sought out subject matter that was, you know, more relevant and more interesting to me, quite frankly, than video games. I still, video games are great. I understand them. Obviously, I play them still to some extent with, with my kids now. Um, but this is the stuff that really gets you fired up as yeah. much as that's weird to say about municipal politics. Cause for a lot of people it's, it's not, but, um, it, it's where all the decisions that affect our street level day-to-day life are made. Mm-hmm. It's not at a provincial mm-hmm. level. It's not at a federal level. So, um, so that's uh, after meeting some people that sort of mentored me and gave me advice in that regard, that's, uh, that's what I, uh, chose to do is kind of take the plunge this election and see what happens. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so so it sounds like it was much more of a uh, <clears throat> a passion of yours that you kind of fell into through through your other work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then, aside from having the autonomy to to come and talk to me, what, why are you running as an independent? Yeah, so I'd never been a member of a political party until this year. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was sort of introduced to Hector uh, Bremner, um, which I can't even remember when that would have been. Maybe it would have been around the by-election of last year. Okay. Um, uh, he adopted a lot of the things we had been uh, pushing for, advocating for with abundant housing in terms of land use reform, uh, the idea that three-quarters of our residential land is given over to detached housing, and why can't we do something more um, socially equitable, let's sure. say, with this land? Uh 
And so that impressed me because at the time, really no one was talking about that. Now, you know, you have some other groups talking about it. I know One City t- puts it really heavily in their messaging, mm-hmm. which, you know, there are some core members of AHV that are, you know, sort of connected there as well. So I'm, I'm you know, that's why. But uh, <laughs> um, I... So for me, it made sense at the time to support Hector in that process in the hopes that we could get some of these changes made. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was going through uh, that mayoral nomination process with the MPA, which is not a party I'd ever been affiliated with before. Uh, so I uh, joined the NBA. To, NPA, NBA. <laughs> I'm not I tall wish. enough to join the NBA. <laughs> I joined the NPA to support him through that, uh, which was, you know, a bit of a surreal experience. But so that was mm-hmm. about for about three months. I had an NPA membership uh, okay. before I think Gregory Baker, their president, tore it up very noticeably on Twitter. So right, <laughs> I don't think he was happy with me trying to sneak into his party. So yeah, <laughs> so 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 let, let let's get into that, and, and we'll go back to you being an independent. Yeah. Um, you're saying you joined the NPA sort of on this wave that that mm-hmm. Hector had brought in, and he did bring in a lot of new membership yeah. and, and a lot of uh, new blood. And even speaking to another independent city council member, or sorry, independent city council candidate, um, you know, th- this person was telling me that there was a lot of excitement at the time mm-hmm. that maybe some new blood was going to reshape what the NPA stood for or what it meant. Yeah. Um, was it all the Hector Bremner stuff and, and him being disqualified from running for mayor that that put you out of the party? And, and was that essentially the moment of disillusionment with that party? Or was there something before that or things things leading up to that? I, it would be strong to call it disillusionment because I knew very clearly going in that that was a possibility. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. So before Hector sort of got axed out of that process by their Greenlight Committee, um, about a week before I had written my statement about that exact thing happening, <laughs> you know, Interesting. So it was that telegraphed. I mean, they did, they didn't hide it too much. Um, yeah. So I do think, like you said, a lot of new blood was brought in. Uh, and I think it was sort of viewed as a bit of a threat to the existing um, sort of power structures in there. They had mm-hmm. a certain way they wanted things to go. And, um, they made sure that happened, basically. Yeah. And that happens in parties. And that's part of why I'm running independent, you know, like I, 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 Politics is politics. There's always going to be a bit of this gamesmanship, unfortunately. Um, but I do believe in like the democratic process, and mm-hmm. that was supposed to be a democratic democratic process where you bring people into the party. There's a vote about who they all believe in, and the person that they believe in becomes the leader of the party. And if you pledge to do that, and then you don't do it, I don't trust you anymore. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, and I guess that brings me to. My next question is, and it, again, it's tied to why you're running as an independent. When Hector Bremner created his new party, Yes Vancouver, they announced their slate. There were a lot of people that were surprised that you were not on that slate. And I believe you're even one of the uh, signatures on Hector Bremner's candidacy mm-hmm. papers as well. So obviously you ha- you have a good relationship and you've maintained a good relationship with him. But it hasn't really been explained why you didn't become a, par- uh, a member or sort of the star city council <laughs> candidate of, of Yes Vancouver, as a lot of people had anticipated. I think it's it really just came down to gut feel. Um, yeah. uh, Hector's got a, a good team, and, uh, you know, I I don't actually know much of his council slate now, so I, I don't know, but it's they seem like nice people. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and I, you know, have a minor amount of a reputation I've built up built up through the things we've been talking about. Sure. 
Um, and I just knew that at the end of the day, on October 21st, the day after the election, all I would really have would be like my reputation and integrity. And mm -hmm. I didn't feel comfortable handing that over, uh, like for someone else to manage basically. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's not actually a reflection on Hector or any of his team. It's, uh, it just, maybe it's a newbie, naive candidate thing to say. I don't know. But like for me, I wanted to be in control of that. And even if it cost me, uh, like a chance in the election, which remains to be seen, mm -hmm. I still felt more comfortable. I mean, there'll be a life after this election. Of course. You know, you got to think a lot more longer term than just whatever it takes to win an election. Yeah. Basically. And if, you know, there was any year for independence, it's it's this year. Yeah, I have a great campaign manager and he's, uh, you know, he obviously believes very strongly in me and the, and the odds of this being the year of the independent. Mm -hmm. And this could be, you know, I, what was I listening to? I was listening to the Cambia Report podcast last night, and they were, um, I think they had asked, uh, oh, I might be getting this wrong. I just, I do remember somebody saying in the course of that that this could be the only year that this kind of opportunity mm -hmm. exists. Um, it feels like a unique year for sure. Yeah, where the parties are trying to figure out how we get by in this new campaign finance sort of world. Yeah. And there's this, this explosion of independence. And, um, Let's give it a shot this year and see what happens. Yeah. Did, did your campaign manager also leave Yes Vancouver because they were associated with sort of that NPA crew that had exodus that had left, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, yes. So my campaign manager had made the decision to leave before I did. And, oh, okay. Um, he was the campaign manager for, for Yes. Um, yeah, that's already been reported. So yeah. I'm not talking out of school here, but... Um, did that influence your decision to, yeah, to it run did. it? Okay. Honestly, it did. And this is the most I've talked about this because, you know, I don't know how interested people are in that, that level of behind the scenes. But yeah, like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, he's a really good guy, has great values, you know, volunteers in the downtown east side. Like, mm -hmm. I just, it, I trust his values uh, so much. And I guess, the I, you know, with what I just said, like, about after the election, all you have left is sort of your integrity and all that kind of stuff, like, I worried that without him there, um, it would be harder for uh, things to go well. Put it that way. Yeah, fair <laughs> you enough. You know, I trusted his decision making, and I obviously I still trust his decision making. Mm -hmm. that, you know, he's very much about uh, being positive, running a positive campaign, and uh, and that's what I believe in too. There's just no point slinging mud at people. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that said, I know in the middle of an election campaign, some of these things are kind of weird to talk about. So I do appreciate yeah. the candor. <laughs> um, one last thing, and, and this isn't really a question for me, but it is a question that comes up on the internet. There's a photo of you and Gregor Robertson. Yeah. <laughs> Full disclosure, there's a photo of me and Gregor Robertson on the internet too. Um, and you've gotten lumped in with Vision Vancouver quite a bit and, and people start digging into your personal life and all this other stuff, which I, I don't mm -hmm. want to get into. Um, but I just want to give you the opportunity to set the record straight. What's your relationship with Vision Vancouver? Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, Did you ever campaign for them? Never. I, hear that a lot. I know that's so funny. <laughs> well, I, it's funny that you hear that a lot. I must have muted the right people on Twitter. So I don't, I don't hear it that much anymore. But, um, I know there was one particular uh, blogger out there that is, he loves to come back to this theme, and I don't know why. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I've never even had a Vision membership. Like I said, and it wasn't a member of any party before the three months this year. Yeah. Uh, I've certainly never campaigned for another party. That photo, um, what we had done is a, a friend of mine at a local ad agency called Rethink, they were doing a campaign for uh, Dogwood um, 
Dogwood, the uh, environmental group. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Dogwood, what, what's the word? Dogwood Initiative? I can't remember. Uh, in any case, uh, their campaign at the time was no tankers, like no tankers in Burrard Inlet. Uh, yeah. Uh, in English Bay. And what they wanted us to do, my company, my uh, video game company, is create like a virtual reality installation. It was actually really cool, like with an Oculus Rift built into one of those like tourist binocular things. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look through it, it would show you like what happens if there's an oil spill. And so we had like a few weeks to do it. We did it practically pro bono because it was just something we believed in. Yeah. Um, and then I think we would, that would have been around the time there was an election going on, and uh, Gregor stopped by for a photo op um, because Rethink was uh, the ad agency was coordinating all the press for that day. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's the kind of thing where you just film a bunch of stuff and then you submit that as a project to a bunch of awards shows. Yeah. You know, ad agencies do this all the time. Sure. Um, and yeah, Gregor came by, and I got a photo with Gregor, uh, and that's uh, I think that's the only time I've stood beside Gregor. <laughs> but it was a great photo of it. It was. A, you both looked very nice. Thank very, you. Very, very <laughs> yeah. handsome. That would have been November of whatever the last general election was, November four years ago. I yeah, guess. November twenty fourteen. It's. So. I mean, it's interesting, and and I and I wanted to bring that up because I do feel like as someone who is also critical of of politicians some of the stuff just goes overboard and it's just like, it's not really rooted in fact. I mean, we had Sean and Sylvester in here and I asked her very point blank about, you know, when, what was her relationship with vision? When was she involved? When was she separated from them? And she's been very consistent and gives a, a great answer, but people will still say, Oh, you know, she's vision incognito or whatever. And it's yeah. like, well, is what do you have to substantiate exactly. any of that? You have a photo of her with Gregor taken at an AGM, which happened to be in the building that she worked in, <laughs> right? Like the, you know, it, it, yeah. things don't, don't add up. And I think it's important for, for everyone to be critical of things like that when, especially when you're throwing out labels or associations, just to be like, okay, well, what, what substantiates that? Yeah, it's just, right? it's really hard to prove something that something doesn't exist if someone thinks it exists so like we go with abundant housing we go through this all the time there's a large there's a number of people put it out this way on twitter that think that we're just sort of paid for by the real estate agency or real estate industry rather that we're just cash and checks left right and center you know Mm -hmm. we've taken about 70 dollars of outside money from two different people over the you know two and a half years we've been around most of the I think we did some internal accounting recently and I think we've spent about six thousand dollars total in two and a half years and about four thousand dollars of that was directly out of my own money yeah. so like, <laughs> you know and I think the other two thousand was out of the other members money like the other you know guys like me basically so we don't take any money from developers but you cannot tell people that yeah. enough like they won't they just won't believe you and, and and if they see things that are well organized like we do these walking tours uh, of various neighborhoods and mm-hmm. they'll get like a hundred people out and we'll have you know flyers printed materials all sorts of great stuff uh, because you know we're reasonably organized and digitally literate and can print stuff out and mm-hmm. so on um then they'll think well there's no way you can get 100 people out without somebody's got to be funding you know like it's, right. it doesn't matter you cannot disabuse people of this notion that uh there's like some shadowy cabal behind what you're doing totally yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I guess that's just the lesson of you know it's great to be critical but also be critical of you know what you're thinking and and Try to substantiate it, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you are accusing someone of or uh, saying someone is, you know, what are the facts behind it? Yeah. yeah. Um, that said, let, let's get into some stuff. Let's get into some policy. Let's get into the real issues. Let's talk about housing. Cool. Tell me about your housing platform in a nutshell. 
In a nutshell, four floors and corner stores. Okay. I, I don't know if you've heard that tagline before. I have. Great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a very, it's a well-worn sort of YMB tagline. And but I mean, I like it because it kind of wraps up a number of concepts. Uh, four floors, obviously pretty self-explanatory. Usually that can mean everything from sort of like a single lot uh, additional density kind of um, maybe you've got a few units like multi-generational housing type development all the way to like low-rise apartment building. Mm -hmm. And the corner store aspect, um, that gets back to the fact that we don't allow corner stores, uh, housing above corner stores anymore like we did prior to 1947. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's oh, something that we just wrote out of our zoning code. Um, hmm. I guess that would be around the time of, the, of World War II or so. Oh, wow. Um, so places like uh, the Wilder Snail um, or La Marche St. George, you know, the these awesome, like, bucolic little uh, corner store, coffee shop, housing above. Like, there's mm. lots of them also in... Um, Strathcona, what am I thinking of? Uh, Finch's uh, is also in a similar building. Okay. Yeah, and you know, the one in East Van, not the one downtown. Uh, that's the kind of stuff we need to get back to if we want to put vitality back in our neighborhoods. It's mm. basically diversity, not just of housing stock and the whole missing middle of housing, which ranges from, you know, obviously duplexes, which we recently got, all the way to low-rise apartment buildings and fourplexes and everything in between, co-ops, mm. co-housing, all that stuff. But the idea that we also do mid-block retail, like small-level mom-and-pop retail that allows uh, for lower property taxes, uh, businesses embedded within communities so that you they can like live and work in the same place and we can bring commerce back to that uh, neighborhood level like it used to exist in. So mm-hmm. That would be like... That's you know that's a good encapsulation, but there you know I have other sort of aspects of the housing plan as but well. But the main idea is you want a lot of the city that's being zoned for single family housing to be zoned for four floors and, and corner stores. Precisely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I'm following you on the on this path, uh, but one question I have right away when I hear that is how do we ensure that these new developments are in fact affordable? Because it seems like mm-hmm. every new development. Um, aside from social housing, mm-hmm. uh, and even social housing can be quite expensive, yeah. but um, but it seems like every new development is really expensive, and, and there becomes this delicate balance of taking old stock out of the market, which can be affordable, and putting in new stock. So so how do we ensure that that these new developments are affordable? Yeah. And the answer to that is sort of twofold. There's a public and a private answer to that. Like, sure. So, um, you know, yes, public sector involvement has to happen. So, you know, we're talking about different levels of government, like federal and provincial government, uh, when it comes to, say, things like co-op, excuse me, co-ops or social housing or things that need a direct subsidy from the public sector to make more affordable. And we're fortunate now to be to have better alignment at the federal and provincial level that we can do that more, and that's already started. So. Okay. You're seeing more and more of that. And privately, we can uh, basically put our hand on the scale more than we have been when it comes to affordable housing. So if we're trying to make purpose-built rental more affordable, our density bonusing for that needs to be more than 0.2 or 0.25. It needs to be more like 1.25 FSR. Sorry, what do you mean by that? FSR, (laughs) floor space ratio. So the amount of extra density you're allowed to have provided you're delivering affordable, like truly affordable housing. Gotcha, okay. Um, Right now, we don't really lean very heavily on that scale in favor of uh, purpose-built rental, which is, for someone like me who's never going to be able to afford to buy, um, and I've got a family to raise, and every day I check Craigslist like you know three, four times with these safe searches just in case we get kicked out. You know, <laughs> like, sure, yeah, yeah. I would love, worry. yeah, I would love purpose built rental. It would give me housing security, 
Um, but right now, like the we don't we build it in this sort of the inverse proportions to say Seattle, where they build uh, eighty twenty rental versus condo. We build almost the other way around, and that's oh, because that right? yeah, that's mm-hmm. because our incentives are just not there. Like. Um, you know, it's way easier to get financing for a condo project. Uh, you just have to have a certain percentage of pre-sealed condos. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just the bonuses aren't there for you to build deeply affordable rental housing in the city. So, so the next question I have and sort of related to this as well is, um, and again, I'm totally going to cop to being a basic bro, so you'll have to dumb <laughs> it down for me. But when we have uh, purpose-built rentals, again, how do we ensure that can you just walk me through how we ensure that the the rents are mm-hmm. somewhat affordable for you know middle class uh, families? Yeah, or middle and income earning families. I totally, say. and yeah. that I mean, there's a range of affordability. Obviously, there was a question at last candidate standing about how do you define affordability, and uh, that is such a tough one because it's different for every single person. Obviously, but but I would say like thirty five hundred dollars a month is not affordable. Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, and somebody was saying if you're earning uh, like just above poverty line, then you shouldn't be paying more than 30% of your income to rent, and then it can slide up from there the more you earn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was, you know, that's like a living wage. If you're, if, you li- if you're you know, paying 30% of your living wage to accommodation, that seems like a, a baseline for affordability and mm-hmm. going from there. But as to, you know, how you make that affordable, it's going to come down to, like, not all projects are going to be affordable. Like, that's the, the bottom sure. line is not everything is a range of options. Um, but some of it is going to come down to how much we decide to build on, say, leased city land. And uh, if we can, like, remove the cost of land from that equation, it gets more affordable. If we can mm. remove the cost of parking from that equation, every additional parking spot costs between fifty dollars and $150,000 per unit. Hmm. So depending on how far you have to dig down. And at this point, every additional parking spot we're building will probably be empty in 10 years due to automated electric vehicles anyway. So, Very possible, yeah. You know, we really shouldn't be building more parking downtown, uh, certainly under buildings. So if we can do some things to tweak uh, even things like the building code, where right now we have uh, certain requirements that buildings step back from the street. It's called like a wedding cake design. Mm-hmm. But that adds a huge amount of cost and engineering um, uh, issues to do that. So if we can reduce some of those requirements, we reduce the unit cost of actually building affordable housing. It's not one thing, though. Like mm-hmm. It's a bunch of tweaks that it's going to take to get that type of affordability. So... Like even things like side and front yard setbacks, you know, if we want to develop more on a, even a single lot of uh, on the west or the east side, the way we can develop more is by removing all these um, setbacks that prevent us from actually taking advantage of the size of that lot. You know, mm. and if you know what I mean by setbacks, it's how far, you know, the 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 building itself is away from either the front of the property or the back of the property or the properties to either side. Okay. And you look at like Brooklyn Row houses and stuff like that that front directly onto the street. Yeah. They yeah. run, they're really long. They run the entire length of the lot and obviously they're connected. I mean, that's an example of practically no setbacks and you're delivering great housing density. And Montreal does that wonderfully as well. Mm-hmm. And nobody would inc- accuse Montreal of being a city riddled with high rises. Sure. But that's how they achieve great density and great livable density is having that type of street level, uh, friendly housing, low rise housing. Mm-hmm. This all sounds like a big paradigm shift to me, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, like it's something that can't necessarily be done overnight. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. But um, a year or two ago, there were people that said this couldn't be done at all. Like, so yeah. 
a big part of what we tried to do with abundant housing is, and this is only a term I've learned since starting with abundant housing, but this idea of the Overton window. I don't know if you ever heard this. No, please explain. Yeah, it to I me. know, and I'm going to be the worst person to try to explain this because I'm not an academic. But it's the it's the Overton window is the uh, is um, that within the Overton window is what's considered achievable, and if you move the over Overton window, you know you're obviously moving what's considered achievable, mm. and that's kind of what we've been trying to do with the advocacy work with abundant housing, is by sort of revealing the systemic bias behind uh, zoning and how it's shaped our cities over decades uh, and by pointing towards other examples where this hasn't been the case and you know you can actually fix this uh, we've kind of shifted from some people who say like well you know uh, detached housing is in our DNA like it's never going to change to well I know it's going to change. I just want to know how it's going to change. I want to. I want some input into how it's going to change. Right. So now it's a matter of yeah. We all know it's got to change because this is a social equity issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're just talking about how and when and what's right for each neighborhood and and that's only happened in a year or two, quite frankly. That yeah. level of discussion at a municipal um, uh, zoning sort of level. Um, so I'm pretty. You know, I'm pretty positive obviously i would be given the you know my particular background sure but i do think just among uh, a lot of the people on the can on the campaign trail they chat about the same sort of things uh mm-hmm. you know publicly and privately and i i do think we're right around the corner for making that happen okay so so while your housing policy can be focused on that um one thing i i, I don't really see in your platform and please correct me if mm-hmm. i am wrong is any mention of empty homes or Airbnb enforcement, because those Mm. seem like, and maybe I'm wrong again, I'm willing to be corrected, (laughs) but those seem like low hanging fruit in terms of putting supply back into the market of of tightening those things up. Um, Why is that? Why, Why shouldn't we focus more on that? I'm not saying we shouldn't. So okay. uh, I just chose not to put them in there because there already are a couple policy tools already in place there mm-hmm. that we've just, obviously the empty homes tax is one and then the STR regulations around Airbnb uh, being the other. Um, and even, you know, I, I spoke with Airbnb even last week about this. They had a couple government relations people out and we had a sit down and, and they're accepting of this, this new regime, uh, this new sort of regulatory regime. And they're eager to work with the city because obviously now they're at a strategic disadvantage versus the other platforms that haven't submitted to this type of SDR regulation. Right. So they're eager to get all, you know, the bookings doc, booking.coms of the world and the VRBOs of the world on the same kind of regime is there on. Mm-hmm. So we have a partner there with Airbnb that wants to see these regulations pushed out across the rest of the industry. And I think we have to measure the efficacy of those. And they really only took effect on September 1st. Mm-hmm. So we're still trying to figure out. And I still see all the posts on Twitter. Um, you know, I think it's like, what, Mortimer? Yeah, and, Mortimer. Uh, yeah, the exactly. second time he gets a mention on the show. He's well, amazing, it. yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I agree. And uh, um, it's frustrating to see, like... It, it kind of makes me a little bit irked that we don't have a, like a license validation tool built right into uh, what's happening on Airbnb. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be able to enter exempt or enter a bad license. It should yeah. just validate it with the city. But you know, this is V1 of this uh, STR regulations. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing to say that we can't revisit this and make it more efficient. What I did, um, so I, I, I asked Airbnb about that exact thing, and they said that at the end of every 90-day period, they provide a list of you know all their bookings and who's listed with them and who doesn't and does have a license. And so, if you're the city, you could even if you didn't want to sort of play whack-a-mole day over day with, mm-hmm. with every last bad listing, you could wait 
look at that list of, you know, at the end of 90 days and just go down that list and write up your fines if you're so inclined. So yeah. I, I think the city has a, a mechanism right now that's probably pretty good that they should evaluate for at least three or six months before trying to readdress it. And same thing with the empty homes tax. We're a little bit further ahead on that, but um, there's no reason why we can't look at how it's been implemented and see if it should be tighter or looser or, you know, what's working and what's not. So I am for those things, um, but I do think it's disingenuous to say if we just do those things, all of a sudden we'll have enough homes for everyone. Right. Uh, and with um, AHV, the reason why we've never mentioned those things is, <clears throat> excuse me, we from day one wanted to run a positive organization that talked about abundance, you know, like they have mm-hmm. abundant housing, and not about keeping out um, like foreigners, quote unquote, or because like some of that discourse around um, empty homes tax gets goes down certain rabbit holes that are quite uncomfortable. Sure. Um, so we just really wanted to stay positive and talk about there should be more. There should be more options for housing um, and not necessarily even, you know, towers. We're really interested in everything in the middle there that probably doesn't even break above the tree line in any given neighborhood. It's all the low-rise stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I'll have to admit I had a, I had a very friendly chat with uh, someone from AHV and I think I was talking about Air- Airbnb uh, enforcement or empty homes. And, and uh, you know, they came back to me and, and they said, uh, yeah, okay, if we do all that, then how about we work, work on some of our stuff as well? And I said, that seems reasonable, right? Like, it just seems like um, I almost feel like if, if maybe that was put out more yeah, in probably. communications, yeah. that people would start to, to, to see that, okay, you are looking at a holistic point of view. Because, yeah. again not saying that you're not but that's the image that's that's uh projected onto a lot of ahv friendly candidates is that they're not looking at the whole i totally agree i and there's a reason for this and it's largely because we're a bipartisan group or Mm. nonpartisan or however you want to say it like you know we have uh diehard ndpers in there we have bc liberals we have green party people uh, you know we have people at different levels of uh their sort of government involvement um, so we don't really have libertarians, <laughs> even though I think we get obviously accused of like, you're a neoliberal shill or whatever. Like, so we're no, we're not that. But um, uh, I think when we had these initial sort of like constitutional level meetings for what this uh, the society would be, we, uh, we argued over these sort of things and didn't really come to consensus on whether or not we would publicly support Airbnb mm. regulations or we'd support empty homes taxes. Because some of us, like you've just heard, like, uh, you know, I would be comfortable supporting that sort of stuff. Um, but if we can't agree as a group, we just stuck to the thing we could agree on because what tears apart a lot of nonprofits is when you start getting into areas where, you know, we're all volunteer, none of us get paid. So you really have to keep everyone on you know, uh, like behind the mission. And sure. if we start diving down different holes that everyone uh, sort of tears people apart, then um, it's harder to do that. It's harder to marshal everyone in the same direction. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, I mean, that's so common. There's different tiers of negotiation, right? There's mm-hmm. like the negotiations within your organization, yeah. and then there's the <laughs> negotiations of how your organization works with other parties. Like there's, it's complicated, I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. And it's, it's been a fantastic learning experience for me because it has exposed me to people outside of my immediate political bubble before where you can kind of get in your own tribe and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, you can initially just dismiss, you know, like, oh, that's just somebody talking about a bunch of free market 
nonsense and whatever. And mm-hmm. and then you kind of dig into it a little bit more and you're like, oh, okay, I kind of see where you're coming from. And, and you have to like get past that kind of that knee jerk tribalism and actually understand where they're coming from. And, yeah. you you know, then maybe you can disregard the idea if you still don't think it's any good. Sure. But, <laughs> but, you know, you owe yourself uh, to kind of like peel back that, that initial layer that has you dismiss something outright. So. Yeah, fair enough. When it comes to your housing platform as an independent candidate, mm-hmm. and again, we, we sort of touched on this at the start as well, what differentiates your housing platform from Yes Vancouver in particular and uh, from other parties if you if you want to mention them. Yeah. I'll be honest, I haven't sat down and read Hector's housing platform. <laughs> I probably should have. No? Did uh, you hear it's 49 pages? I did. I, it's every every uh, debate <laughs> it, I'm at, he brings a, it out. It, it yeah. weighs about five ounces, I think. Like It's it's a really hefty, real substantial document, if you haven't heard of it That's yet. right. It definitely passes that weight test. Um, yeah, no, I know. You know. I think we were just at False Creek Residents Association's all-candidate meetings last night, and he, he was sitting a few down from me, and he had, had that out as a, as a prop as well, and good on them. It looks like, it looks like it's you know a lot of research has gone into it, and they've t- you know, probably taken a more verbose stance than anyone else. So that's cool. Um, I think less about what differentiates my housing platform from Hector's because mine is not forty nine pages, and I'm a council candidate, and not a mayoral candidate and party, so it probably doesn't need to be forty nine sure. pages. Uh, is are the other socially progressive things that I think I was sort of more free to pursue maybe on my own uh, than I might have been. Not that okay. I don't think they're socially progressive, but uh, uh, that's that's where I've really felt sort of unchained or un, unencumbered, if you will, as an independent candidate is the ability to, um, to you know tackle uh, opioid poisoning. Um, mm all the public transportation and bike lane type stuff, like stuff that, you know, coming from maybe, I I was never coming from the MPA, but maybe yes, and Hector uh, coming from the MPA might have been tougher things to stake out positions around. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have to really worry about those are my values and I can stake out positions around those because I know they're backed by data. So so that's been fun to kind of develop those non-housing aspects. you know, as far as the the housing aspects, it's tough to compare because mine is uh, fairly high level and theirs is very granular. I think we're roughly on a similar page. I think uh, I think I probably weight things slightly more uh, toward the uh, public sector in some areas mm-hmm. than I know Hector's talking about. Um, there was an article in the Star, I believe, that um, when going. It was talking about all the candidates, but it sort of said that there was less of a focus on non-market housing, or at mm-hmm. least Hector had less of a focus than other mayoral candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know he's talked about sort of, I think, how does he put this, like unlocking the value or something in our lots or city? or um, So, you know, what it sort of signals to me is he, through lack of, uh, through taking away regulation or you know, through upzoning, wants to sort of have the private sector pay for most mm-hmm. of it. And I know yeah. he's probably... He can correct me, uh, but that's you know that's. I what think I'm that's the of... impression that a lot of people have with with that plan. I think that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. fair. Yeah. So, uh, I and I don't think that that's entirely wrong. But nor do I think it's the entire solution. I think that's probably part of it, and you should pro- it should probably be done partially. Like you know, mm. I'm a little bit more more moderate than that when it comes to the private sector. Although I you know I, I'm not at all shy about embracing the private sector to deliver affordable housing. So, sure. Yeah. How much non-market housing should Vancouver be building? And when I say non-market housing, I am talking about co-ops, mm-hmm. social housing. 
as much as humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, that's a cop-out answer, but I also think uh, numbers are a bit of a cop-out at this point, too, because nobody, you know, I know Kennedy has talked about 88,000 units of this, and uh, I remember Patrick Condon has repeatedly come back to 50% uh, non-market housing, 50, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, uh, the special. I take special issue with the percentages. <laughs> sure, yeah, because, because you're not talking about volume. Well, right? totally. We built two units. Yeah, yeah, 50, exactly. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so I think all we need to do is try to remove a lot of the roadblocks uh, to getting these things done. So, for instance, um, uh, there's a co-housing uh, project. It's now fully built on 33rd between Knight and Victoria, uh, called Vancouver Co-Housing, and it's on three lots, three formerly uh, detached house lots, mm-hmm. uh, and it houses 75 people. Um, I did a tour of it because my friend Rachel lives there, and, uh, and you know, I don't know if you know about co-housing much. No, uh, I don't. No. Okay. So co-housing is, it's sort of like co-ops, um, but sort of not. It's, I mean, it co-ops in as much as it's a nice little community. They have like a they have a dining sort of hall. They have a bike sh- sort of shop, workshop. They have a yoga room. They have mm. all sorts of amazing amenities and everything empties out into this sort of central courtyard between all their units. Uh, and it's gorgeous. It's only about three maybe stories high or so. Okay. Um, but the thing about co-housing is that it's a group of individual, individuals that came together um, to build this project together. So it's not... You know, I guess there would be contractors and stuff involved, but it's not a developer building it. So there's no profit side of the equation. So if you can buy three lots together and then coordinate building something on it, then you're getting it for the price of that lot plus the price of construction. So there's no margin on it, obviously, because you're you're developing it yourself. So there's, you know, that's a way for those that are privileged enough to be in that situation to get a more affordable path to home ownership. Yeah. So you have equity in the, and you have stake in in the property as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I would love to see. Uh, right now, that's like the hardest thing in the city to build. It takes forever. Mm. The city does not have a path to facilitate nearly any of it, uh, putting people together, or matching them with people that, uh, that can do the work or uh, amalgamating those lots to produce you know, co-housing like that. So that's if we could grease the wheels for that kind of stuff and, and you know, for those that have the money to be able to do that, to be able to put those together. Mm-hmm. My friend Rachel rents in that building. Mm. So she's obviously renting via, you know, off, a, off an owner. And it's, uh, it's more affordable and it's such a sweet setup. Like I would, you know, kill to live in there with my family, quite frankly. I guess one question I have is how do those owners come together? Like who are those owners that come together and, and yeah. eliminate a profit margin because they're creating homes? Like for friends, like-minded people. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of a, I, the word commune is a bit loaded because it's certainly not a commune sure. you know, in the Portlandia kind of model. Of one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember talking to a number of years ago, uh, Mackenzie Stonehawker, and she is, I can't remember the name of her co-housing development that now is just getting off the ground because it's taken that long in the in North Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, but for her, it was uh, an initial group of, say, a half a dozen friends, and then, you know, friends of those friends, and, you know, they all had little bios of themselves on the website. It's very much like dating in the housing you know, <laughs> world or something. Yeah. So you can kind of be like, Oh, I see the kind of the the leanings of this group of people. Mm-hmm. I would be interested in, you know, starting this with them and now once they hit a certain critical mass, like let's say a dozen or 15 sort of um units worth of people, yeah. Uh, then they can move forward and get the financing and and get the lot purchased and that sort of stuff. So Okay. Yeah, but it takes a lot to do it. I mean, you've got the bringing together of people, you got to figure out the financing, yeah. you got to work with the city to try to figure out where the lot could be. 
or Latsa could yeah. be. So it's the you know it would be great if we had a program for that. Uh, and that's gotcha. just one thing. Again, it's not going to solve everything, but there's a certain group of people for whom that works. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, when we are talking about you know building new housing, whether it's um, just new developments on on the market or non-market housing, one question I always have is, especially with a lot of these mayoral, mayoral candidates throwing out these numbers in terms mm -hmm. of how much housing they want built, is you know with low unemployment that we have here in the city, with a shortage of workforce, we're trying to attract people to work here. Can Vancouver build as many homes as all these parties and mayoral candidates are promising in their platform? Yeah, I don't think anyone's really examined that too closely, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> and I mean, to a certain extent, it's like if you build it, they will come in the in the sense of labor. Like it, you know, but labor costs and construction costs in general have gone up a heck of a lot. Yeah. So there's a bit of a we're going to find a natural um, steady state, I think, on the construction throughput in the city if we almost haven't found it already. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had record starts for uh, quite a few quarters now. Um, so you're going to see some of those turn into completions, and we can probably like turn uh, that workforce towards new things. So I, I do think we have capacity, but we're probably not talking 2x or 3x capacity. You're, yeah, you're, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely not. Uh, and especially given how expensive it is to live here, mm -hmm. virtually um, everyone I talk to seems to have, like I was talking to a, a woman this morning whose husband uh, owns a coffee shop on the drive and none of their employees, even and even her husband, live in Vancouver. <laughs> really? Yeah. So yeah. The, she was like, we want to know who to vote for, but we just want to know so we can tell our customers because none of us can vote. Right. <laughs> it was fascinating. <laughs> and she owns a like a pizza business in North Vancouver and she doesn't live in North Vancouver. They live in North Burnaby. It's like, it's so fascinating to see like, uh, just how hard it is for people to make a living here in Vancouver and stay in Vancouver. So for sure. And, and that's the thing. When you have, you know, decent-sized populations in Burnaby, in Surrey, um, when, you having, when you have construction projects in those areas, when you have hospitality industries in those areas, why would you as a construction worker or as a barista or uh, someone who works at a hotel want to travel from Surrey to Vancouver when you can make the same wage living in Surrey oh, yeah. and working in Surrey. I don't need to answer that, <laughs> No, of course <laughs> I think not. it just did. It's like a rhetorical question. No, it is a rhetorical <laughs> question. But, I, but I, I think that's one thing that unfortunately, probably because it comes a great political risk, is that no one's really talking about is, okay, where do how do we, one, attract the workforce needed to build all these homes? And then, yeah. and then two, uh, not just attract them, but but have them live here or live close by as opposed to working, uh, living and working in a different mm -hmm. uh, uh, part of the part of the metropolis. Yeah. Altogether, and and right? with all the demand, because we've had sort of record uh, starts, construction starts over the last few quarters. And we also have the steel tariffs coming from the states, like uh, all the costs of construction, not just labor, as I mentioned, have gone up. Sure. Yeah. So I think we're we are hitting a point where unless you get some counterbalancing effect, like you start to, you know, get, practically give away land mm -hmm. or provide some serious incentives, you, you know, we will have a bit of a we'll hit a steady state. I hope we won't have a slowdown, but we will hit a steady state. on Yeah. That, so, yeah. Is that what this all comes down to is, is the cost of land? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much entirely. I mean, it, to be more specific, it's the buildable square foot cost of land. Mm, okay. So, you know, if you if I can build 
a four-story building versus a six-story building versus an eight-story building, the buildable square foot cost goes down the higher right. I go up. So that's where the pressure to have higher densities comes from is you know, the, high, the more units you can build, the cheaper each unit can be. And that's, that's essentially the math, but we don't do it at a scale large enough to drive uh, downward market pressure at all, like price pressure at all, because we control the zoning so tightly and we give it away so infrequently and we essentially extract every, you know, tens of millions of dollars in that process as we do it, that uh, it's, we're essentially driving scarcity by doing that. Like we're, you know, we control the resource so tightly that there's no way for the market to balance itself in a more healthy way. Right. And again, basic bro here, but <laughs> when you were talking about, you know, uh, reducing the, the cost per square footage by adding um, levels, yeah. even that has a certain tipping point because we've seen these big mm-hmm. high-rise condos goes, go up and they're certainly not affordable or no, retainable, right? So, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, at a more macro level, like I remember when the three buildings around, three buildings around me went in, there was the... Peter Wall, that rental on Drake and Richards, I think. Okay. Um, and that has, I think, at least a couple hundred units in there. And then there, I think there were the two Aquilini buildings by Rogers um, that went in, and they're both rental buildings. And there was like a moment there where rents in my area went down by around 10 or 15%. That's totally anecdotal, but that was sure. sort of like minorly reported here and there. And I notice it because every single day I'm looking at rents in the downtown <laughs> area. Um, so that there was a very clear correlation between um, uh, supply uh, of rentals in that case and a slight dip in the, in what um, other landlords were able to achieve. And I think at a, at a macro level, it works. Uh, if you look at a building like obviously Vancouver House, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. That could be twice as high. It's not going to be cheap yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> that's not its job is to be cheap that's, no that's very true yeah, yeah so it depends what you build yeah fair enough and that's why like a lot of like my campaign tagline is purpose-built vancouver which is a bit wonky but uh purpose-built rental is such a massive part of how we get to like live and stay in vancouver it's mm-hmm. probably not market condo and there's but there are mar- you know obviously developers make money on Market condo, people live there. Um, they will always be built. I'm not worried about them not getting built. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I am worried about getting built are all the other stuff we talked about, like the purpose-built rental and co-ops, co-housing, land trusts, seniors housing, temporary modular housing. These are all the things that are hard to build, yeah. and uh, and they need special attention. And even with abundant housing, we always get accused of essentially being like shills for developers. I'm not sure if we've ever supported a market condo project. Maybe one, and but I would I'd actually go out on a limb and say no, we never have. It's always okay. been purpose-built rental. We've done huge letter-writing campaigns behind temporary modular housing mm-hmm. when the uh, Clayton evictions in Surrey were happening or threatening to be happening. The people living in the basement suites in Surrey, um, and they were going to be told to get out because there wasn't enough street parking for everyone. Mm. We uh, organized a letter-writing campaign for that. Um, and there was a you know seniors housing project on the west side that was in danger, and the uh, same thing letter writing campaign, council campaign. Uh, so we're very much focused on with abundant housing the same kind of things I'm focused on in my campaign, which are all that missing middle, non market uh, condo sort of options that provide real livability for people here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, one other big part of your campaign, and one one thing that you've talked about as well, is this link with mobility and transportation. Um, so, so moving a little away from housing, although I'm sure they're, as you've said, related. Um, what are we doing wrong in the city of Vancouver when it comes to transportation or, or public transportation? I'd just say, and what powers does the city have? 
to really influence TransLink. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you have people talking about offering uh, free transit for kids, uh, transit investments around um, different neighborhoods or different housing areas. What can we really do as a, as a city? Yeah, that's a super good question because when you're putting together a campaign platform, and I'm going to speak like I'm some seasoned veteran, but I'm not. <laughs> like, this is literally the first time I've done it. But what I've come to learn over this last year, because I announced back in February, so I've, I think I'm like the longest per, you know, time in this race of anyone at this point. Um, <laughs> not that that counts for anything. But when you're putting it together, you're looking for things that the city can actually do and things that you would support if you could convince, you know, uh, say the TransLink board, or you could convince the province, or you could convince the feds. And you don't want to go too far on a limb with what you think you could convince other people to do sure. at those levels, because that's not in your control at all. So yeah. yeah, you can't go around promising a bunch of stuff you can't deliver. So I do actually have free transit for kids under 18 in my platform, mm -hmm. and that's not something city council can just sort of wave a wand and make happen. But it's a bit of signaling to, and I've seen other people, there's the All On Board campaign that's run by the Single Mothers of BC. That's what they're all about, as well as a sliding pass, uh, I believe, for income um, for transit. So there are a lot of other people signaling the same sort of thing. And I know TransLink has under, undertaken a review of this particular issue, uh, offering free transit for kids. I even asked Kevin Desmond that a few weeks ago out at TransLink at an all-candidates meeting is how likely that was to come to pass. Yeah. So I think the idea with something like that, where you're saying something that you can't actually deliver on city council, you can only support, is that you're hoping to build like a, um, a critical mass, like a, a group of people that believe in it. You said it enough. Now yeah. you're going to get in there, and hopefully, if I wind up on council, that'll be something that we put a motion forward to support. That you know, maybe the mayor, whoever that is at the time, who sits on the translate, um, the mayor's council, that's something that they would then take up, right? So there is a bit mm -hmm. of a more of a direct chain, at least in that particular case. But that that's more of a, sort of a signal. Something the city can actually do when it comes to transit, and this, again, was something I talked to Kevin Desmond about uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, they have a bunch of money, TransLink does, uh, to help deliver bus rapid transit in cities. Um, so that means take out a driving lane or take out a parking lane. Maybe it's only during peak times, but that's basically bus a bus rapid transit lane. And that's the kind of stuff that'll make 99 uh, lines, like 99B lines, uh, run a lot faster. It'll make the route that I take or I used to take every day for years. Uh, now, fortunately, only my kids have to do it. <laughs> but it would make that route dramatically faster sure. uh, if we could remove the 20 or so parked cars over strewn over several kilometers on that. On, I won't say the route, but um, and turn it into bus rapid transit. Uh, and the city with TransLink, they, you know, they have money for that, but they require the city to actually make that happen. But, right. Yeah, they can't go in there and start yeah, oh, this is our lane. Thanks. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> so that's where city council and the mayor, it's directly up to them how much they're willing to give TransLink in terms of roadway okay. to facilitate that that bus rapid transit. And buses are our most efficient form of transportation. Like, mm -hmm. I love SkyTrain, uh, but it's hugely expensive. I'm not saying, I mean, I want it all the way to UBC. There's another thing I can't control. But like, <laughs> you know, uh, but buses are the thing we can do now. We can add more buses and we can make them travel faster. And mm -hmm. the city has direct control over how fast they travel. And if we can get those kind of bus rapid transit lanes in there and people start doing the math and saying like, man, I sit in traffic and these buses blow by me all day in their own lane. Forget this. I'm yeah. going to take a bus tomorrow. Like yeah. that's when it tips. But unfortunately, the calculus these days is often the other way around. Like, 
I would take transit, but it takes twice as long. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and then I have a hard time countering that. You know, the counter to that is, well, it's environmentally better and true, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's hard to convince people to spend two or three times longer in traffic uh, just because it's environmentally better. No, very true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the the candor on that, and, and I think... I really do like when candidates sort of differentiate, you know, here are things that the city can do and here are things that the city can advocate for from the province. Yeah, exactly. So I, so I appreciate that uh, that nuance and, and, and you being able to explain that. Thank oh, you. Thanks, Mo. <laughs> um, let's get into the campaign a little bit uh, and then we'll wrap it up here. One thing that I've talked about on the show a couple of times and I talked about this with uh, Derek O'Keefe most recently was that everyone likes to define themselves as progressive. And I think this term has become a bit of a tofu word in the sense that it can mean anything uh, because it just has this low baseline of like not misogynistic, not homophobic, not transphobic, not racist, which I hope all of our candidates are, no matter where they are on the left and right spectrum, no matter where they are on the urbanist conservationist spectrum. Um, but it's a really low threshold, and you have everyone from um, from independents to COPE candidates to NPA candidates, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was Coalition Vancouver candidates as well, describing themselves as progressive. But you also define yourself as progressive, and you and you do you seem to do that quite openly and quite proudly. So I'm just curious, what does that word mean, and, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, such a good question. Because there was a time where, you know, I had that brief flirtation with the NPA and supporting Hector where all of a sudden I wasn't progressive anymore. Right. You know, and it's like, really? Do you know me? Have you looked back through any of my history? (laughs) I am progressive. But then you start to think like, well, what does this really mean if you can essentially just lose a label overnight? Like none of your history matters just because you've chose to support someone for a few months. So. You know, that it's it's minorly annoying that that term has become so uh, watered down. And I think a lot of times on the left, uh, which is, you know, I'd sort of place myself in the center. I mean, who doesn't? It seems like that. <laughs> Let's, you know, but on the Everyone's left. Everyone is balanced. Oh, totally. Everyone is progressive. Perfectly balanced. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, But we get into this narcissism of small differences where yeah. we're just determined to prove that we are more woke or more, uh, you know, um, progressive than the next person and we yeah the left and I'll include myself in this particular thing we sometimes tear each other apart trying to like one up each other mm-hmm. on how progressive we are when we really just need to be pre- pushing forward in the same direction yeah. and not worry about fighting with each other to prove our bona fides over prog- progressivity you know or totally prog- yeah it's really it's fascinating to watch and it you know I think a 6 months ago I might have been more discouraged about it than I am now now it feels like I'm more authentically you know, I guess maybe probably correlates to me running independent. Um, but I feel like I'm more authentically me and back to just being my own voice. I've never, uh, I've always been sort of like an entrepreneur. I've re- never been terribly good with uh, like top-down direction. Uh, sure. So it's nice to be outside of that system and just be back to being um, like who I am, which, you know, who is a progressive person. Uh, to me, progressive, being a progressive means uh, somebody that is interested in social equity, that base decisions on evidence and data rather than the prejudice or ideology mm-hmm. uh, and generally has like the, you know, good social justice sort of mores about them, like right. e- ethics around diversity and inclusion and, um, and just trying to do the right thing for future generations. And mm-hmm. that, and that can be housing, that can be climate, that can be 
anything or all of them all at once, but um, that you're generally, I guess the progressive part of that is that you're headed in the right direction. Right. <laughs> you're yeah. not regressive. Yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, Derek O'Keefe brought up this point that, you know, when I make that criticism of saying the word in general mm. has this low baseline, um, he made a great point of saying, you know, 50 years ago, that was a pretty high high baseline, yeah, right? So it's, it's nice to know that we've come to a point where this thing is expected, yeah. right? That you don't carry these prejudices, at least not, and certainly not overtly, I should say. Um, but then I think when it comes down to policies, that's when we should start determining who is progressive and who is not. And it does come down to things like, social equity, social justice, mm-hmm. um, how we decide to redistribute, redistribute wealth, yeah. right? Because even the most conservative candidate is re- redistributing wealth to a certain degree. Oh, absolutely. So mm-hmm. it's those decisions of how we do it, yeah. I think, should determine how progressive, quote unquote, we are. Yeah. And I mean, on the issue of, say, bike lanes, which seems to be the hot topic, or, you know, it's, luckily this election really hasn't been to the degree no, it has in previous no. elections. No, I think so some people good. have tried to make it a wedge issue. But, true, yeah. true. So I do think, like, if you look anywhere, the bikes and dedicated bike infrastructure is part of the way out of our congestion issue. There are, um, there are no more cars on the road today than there were 20 years ago. There's just less space for them, and we need to get more of those people into other. Uh, modes of transportation um, so that you can, you know, the people that need to drive can drive basically. Mm-hmm. And a progressive stance sort of recognizes that, that they that we have uh, grossly over allocated to car only infrastructure over decades. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we even need to cleave off 10 or 50 or 15 or 5% of the car budget to to rebalance things. It's really probably even less than that in terms of like biking and walking and that sort of stuff to treat those things properly. Mm -hmm. But that is a thing that we need to do. We need to head towards that direction if we're going to have a more livable city. And that's uh, that's part of being progressive to me is that you've got to like look at the data and look at where you want to you, where you want the city to be um, from a positive standpoint in the future, not just a, a punitive one, like I feel wronged and therefore I'm going to return this city back to where, <laughs> right. where I think it was 25 years ago. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, again, uh, I appreciate the definition and I appreciate uh, <laughs> um, you just not not just saying that I'm progressive, but you know, <laughs> uh, substantiating that with, with yeah. what that means to you. Um, a few independent candidates, yourself, Rob McDowell, Aaron Shum, Wade Grant, seem to be campaigning together and, and sort of Sarah Blythe as well as mm-hmm. here and there in, the, in that group as well. Yeah. Is this a covert party? What's what's happening here? No, it's not. Um, and it's funny because what's happened out in New West, uh, like Jonathan Cote is a great guy. I've never met him, but it's you know, like, he, you know, sort of textbook progressive. Uh, mm-hmm. Patrick Johnstone as well as I've met him. And I really, really like Patrick Johnstone. He's the current city councilor out there. Jonathan's the mayor. And, it, you know, they had sort of set up this Team Cote kind of structure. Uh, and I don't know how it's working for them, but it's not uh, nothing I would have done, <laughs> I think I can say. Uh, we are absolutely true independents. Uh, I don't know a thing about the the campaigns of uh, Rob or Sarah or uh, Wade. Um, we don't share anything. Um, we... But you and Wade do have the same campaign manager. Uh, we do. We have the okay. same campaign managing group. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, Mike, who runs that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we were both obviously involved with Hector, so we yeah kind of, yeah came along. But there's no there's a very there's no communication. Nothing. Between. I don't know who's given money to Wade. I don't know where he's spending his money. So, um, 
this it's quite siloed and pretty okay. pretty proper that way. Yeah. Like Rob and I have carpooled to some events mm-hmm. uh, together. It's fun to have like a buddy on the road. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when you're campaigning. It's pretty lonely, like dragging your little lawn signs into the community center, and like <laughs> you know, you can feel like a bit of a dweeb, right, at times. So yeah. it's it's nice to uh, it's nice to have someone to sort of commiserate with at times. Like Fair to, enough, yeah. To be like, oh, okay, whoa, that was a tough question, or something like that. Like, yeah, um, you know, just to feel like you have a friend because there are seventy-one council candidates, yeah. and um, you don't want to feel like you're competing with seventy other people. It's kind of a yeah, you want to feel like there's some camaraderie on 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 the campaign trail, and that's really totally. what that group has provided is uh, is just some. I think there was a Star Metro article out today that talked about the fact that we were all in different places on the political spectrum, but mm-hmm. that you know we would sort of offer this type of sort of moral support to each other. Yeah, and that's pretty much all it's been. There's not any sort of pooling of resources going on. Fair enough, yeah. And it is cool to see candidates giving each other kudos where they are earned or, or mm-hmm. due, right? Yeah. And and you know, one 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 candidate that comes to mind who we've had on the show is Sarah Blythe, and I think mm-hmm. she deserves a lot of kudos for a lot of the work she's done. And it's great to see candidates doing that, you yeah. know, uh, and and being vocal about it as opposed to just saying, well. You know, I'm actually running against her. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so it is kind of nice to see, and um, but again, it, it comes up as this question of you know how, how coordinated are yeah. is this group? Like or, not at all, basically. Yeah. I mean, again, I uh, you know I I brought my oldest daughter to a uh, East Van like uh, Britannia Community Center all candidates meeting earlier this week. And I joked at the time that she was like one quarter of my entire team, you know, because <laughs> she was busy helping me, you know, hand out stuff or whatever, having a great time. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever get her to agree to come out again, but <laughs> it was quite a wild meeting. But um, yeah, we don't, you know, we're independent, so we don't have huge teams. Yeah. Um, so there's nobody's getting paid. We don't have a campaign office. Uh, so How many volunteers do you have outside of your kids? Yeah. Uh, and that's more of, that's like indentured servitude and almost oh yeah totally point, right? yeah <laughs> they would not describe themselves as volunteers yeah, yeah, yeah. well and they have to be fair half of them don't even really seem to give a crap you know like <laughs> the kids, they're just yeah. kind of too yeah too interested in their video games you know i've had a few dozen people indicate that they're uh willing to help and mm-hmm. at various times they have helped on things here and there but it, we don't have like a uh, dozens of people army combing the city yeah we don't enough. have like don't have like four paid staffers uh, advocating on our behalf uh, from some third party. Or, sure. <laughs> you know? So yeah. no billboards that I've seen. No billboards either. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, you can kind of feel like, geez, uh, with all of these kind of forces um, lined up against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not really against, but like with that type of, you know, involvement from big, big people, um, you know, how are you going to win? Yeah. <laughs> but you just got to focus on like what's right in front of you. And I've been taking a little bit of like joy in replying to people's Facebook comments, which it seems perverse. But like, you know, when you run a bunch of political ads on Facebook, it attracts a bunch of comments, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've actually mostly been positive, which is I'm sure that I've just cursed myself. But like <laughs> um, and it's been nice to like write back and, you know, sort of probably slightly too verbose, but considered answers. And then occasionally have someone go, that was a great answer. And you're like. Oh my goodness, humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like redeeming and even if that's like, you know, just one vote, it's it still means something to you like personally. Absolutely. And, I yeah. totally get that. I mean, I um I do that with the podcast sometimes where, you know, there'll be a thread talking about a candidate 
and um, someone might say, you know, I'm unsure about this candidate, or I'm, or I'm this, or I have a question about this candidate, and then I'm, I, you know, I post my podcast link, and it's I'm I'm literally talking to one or two people. Yeah. But when you get that response of like, oh, this is this is awesome. Okay, it's I'm exactly downloading what it. I was looking for. I'm downloading it right now, and you're just like, cool. Like, and you, yeah. And obviously, the hope is. Again, you have no real expectation, but the hope is that that, that one person will tell others. Right. Right. Yes. Because yeah. that's the most powerful sort of word of mouth. I can tweet all day about how great this podcast is, but if but if people are talking about it and telling others, that has way more sway yeah. than than me. Yeah. You know, no matter how fancy I can be with whatever my clips or whatever that's right exactly um i copied one of your clips the uh, yesterday i had to make a little clip of my i saw and... that i saw that yeah well done. i almost called you i thought how does mo do this and then i poked oh you should have yeah oh, i would have helped yeah no, no worries thanks a lot yeah but we'll it, make some for this episode for yeah <laughs> but i mean I, I have been fortunate enough to receive a few people that have said like oh you turned up on my communities like you know people to vote for list or you oh cool yeah i know but it, i love that mm -hmm. uh but then you start thinking like, well, maybe that's just because like this is just my little social circle mm. and, you know, you just have no way of knowing. It's not like there's polling, um, like surveys or, you know, whatever, like advanced yeah. kind of you know, market or sort of research to show that like, you're anywhere in the field. So it's really hard to know in this type of race whether um, like where everything's going to shake out. So you just kind of have to take some joy in the interpersonal totally. interactions. And then if that's uh, what you got out of the campaign and you didn't win, then great. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Um, w one thing I do want to bring up as well is obviously as a, as a founding member of Abundant Housing Vancouver, um, what's the relationship between you and AHV during the campaign? Mm -hmm. one, one thing I will note is that uh, Abundant Housing Vancouver has seemed to endorse ideas, but they haven't endorsed candidates, as far as I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are you essentially a representative of AHV at this point, or what? What's? Yeah, it's funny. So last, this, the first time we came up against this as an organization, uh, AHV did, was last year's by-election, where we had to have this internal discussion about like do we endorse candidates? Like, is that a thing? And mm -hmm. we get asked that. I, even just the other day, somebody wrote in and asked the group that, like, um, if, you know, are you going to be endorsing anyone? Because people are looking for clues, obviously, with 71 yeah. council candidates and 20-some-odd mayoral candidates. So we don't. Um, again, there'd be too much probably disagreement in the group yeah, fair um, enough. to do it. And it's just uh, what we've instead focused on is just providing information um so we send out a candidate questionnaire and even last year when we did it for the by-election there was a discussion around how much editorializing we should do around those responses oh interesting because some organizations uh because now i'm on the opposite end of this i'm receiving dozens of yeah. <laughs> candidate surveys and some of them say well we're going to take your answers and we're going to score them or we're going to mm -hmm. summarize them or we're going to and you're like oh Okay, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and so with AHV, we which didn't... I understand because you're trying to chunk down information, True. right? Not everyone True. can read every candidate's answer; they need sort of the, the gist of it. But obviously, yeah. the the bias, yeah. Well, not just the bias, but <laughs> even if someone's trying to be unbiased, you know, it's still being editorialized. Absolutely. Right? So, so with AHV last year, we decided not to do that. I'm actually not sure what the decision is this year because okay. um, ever since February, when I said I was running, there, you know. I wasn't like excommunicated. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm still on our Slack and I'm still a director of AHV, but there are other groups within our Slack that I'm not invited to where right. stuff gets discussed, you know, like, and I 
it, that's just the way it is, right? Like, so I'm, I'm certainly not their candidate. To their, um, I don't think anyone is from AHV has ever given me money or any sort of, like, support to my knowledge. Uh, you know, maybe are like, you as an individual. Me, oh wait, are you telling me that all that developer money that they're getting? That's right. It's no, not that's filtering through sweet, some law sweet. firm to get to you. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> call, call Peter Wall. See what he says. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways it felt a little bit like being rejected uh, by uh, like someone you love, you know, like uh, when I first announced because they had to sort of take a little bit of a step back from me. Yeah. yeah. I guess that makes sense. And so you're kind of like, oh man, I don't feel like I'm fully in the club anymore. Right? Yeah. But, you know, so in some ways, if I, if I don't wind up elected, there's a part of me that looks forward to just being able to dive back into the advocacy stuff mm-hmm. because, um, because I still do go on the walking tours and I'll help them when I can, but they have an interest in making sure that I'm not, uh, like that there isn't a perceived conflict of interest sure. or like that they're just, uh, you know, I'm a front for them or something. So, right. so I can understand that. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we're just going to wrap up with a couple more questions. Do you have a, do you have a preference for mayor? Anyone that you want to see become mayor? Maybe an endorsement, hmm. not to put you on the spot? Yeah, no endorsement at this point. I think I get asked now, and it seems like a lot of people get asked, you know, that exact question, like, mm-hmm. who do you like for mayor? Or how should I decide my mayor pick? And I gave someone this advice and in probably an overly wordy Facebook response the other day. Uh, and I said, just first think of your values and yeah. do like an initial just broad call for like who fits your values because you can probably cut out a number of people right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And then look at how well they, to put it colloquially, uh, play with others. Like, okay. you know, do they have a big ego? Do they have really devi- a divisive manner about them that may rub people the wrong way? Because Mayor in the city of Vancouver is not an executive position. It's not. It's not like being a CEO. You don't get to just decree things. Mm-hmm, like exactly. You're one vote, and the other ten councillors are the other ten votes, and so you need five councillors and plus yourself to put put any motion through. And if we wind up with a council that doesn't have any party with five seats, and there's a very very strong chance that'll be the case. The mayor's efficacy will entirely rely on their ability to bring people together. So he or she is going to have to figure out ways to bring people together. Mm-hmm. Not just say that, but like actually work with people productively and facilitate like pr- constructive discussions in a way that doesn't insert their own ego into yeah. the into the process. And I think you can probably eliminate a few after like with that criteria as well. So. I hear that, and I'm reading into the subtext. And I feel like there's a pick there. And uh, I think I like that pick. (laughs) So great that this is radio and you can't see facial expressions. Especially the line of someone who says that they do that, but then someone who, you know, has a proven track I don't remember saying that. We'll run it back. We'll We'll we'll, we'll run it back the tape. We'll make a clip of that. That's funny. uh, But we'll leave it at that. And and I do appreciate um, you being honest with that. I, I just realized this, and I, I meant to put this in my notes. You tried bar recently, Flo- floor oh. bar or normal bar? What? Yeah, no, I've done bar before. So oh, you have. Oh yeah. How like, is it? So wait, yeah, the total side sidebar. Yeah, wah, yeah. Wah. Um, 
You remember when ClassPass was unlimited? I don't yeah. Know if, yeah, okay. So ClassPass is this app where you can try out a bunch of different fitness studios in town. And, and now they have a really convoluted system. Now it's, it's all like credits. credits and, and, and Yeah, I still sort you're of all, use You're it. always left with credits at the end of the That's month. the idea, yeah. right? Residual balances, <laughs> yeah. Um, so when it was unlimited, I just went crazy on it and would yeah. go to everything. So bar... Uh, Yoga, Pilates, spin. I went to tons and tons of spin. Um, yeah. You know, to the point where you're like giving yourself hip flexor issues or whatever. Um, so I had a huge amount of fun with it. But yeah, bar. There's a bar studio in my uh, like block, like a block away from me, because uh, yeah. I live in Yale Town. So there are like six bar studios within two yeah, blocks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I just met with the owner sort of the uh, the week before because she had concerns about construction and parking. And oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I wanted to hear them, and uh, and then she said, "Why don't you come?" Uh, take a class and it just highlighted uh how crappy my diet and uh physical kind of exercise regime has become over the course of this campaign yeah fair <laughs> enough i mean that's that's understandable for sure yeah <laughs> but you know it was still good it's like bar is the kind of thing where and she's the owner of the studio so and she was right um beside me throughout this it was tw- me and 25 or 26 women there was wasn't a single other dude there which is funny because it's such an intense exercise like yeah I don't know, have you ever done it no it's to be honest and that's the reason why i bring it up um i'm a big big yogi um mm-hmm. often right now because of a few issues but mm-hmm. big yogi um would do like a weekly pilates class as well like they're so intense mm-hmm. love it love the communities that i'm in um and then everyone tells me like you should try bar because it's like big mm-hmm. on legs and, and all this other stuff and i'm like I don't know. I mean, as as comfortable as I am with with everything else, uh, bar. I don't know. So yeah. I, that's why I wanted to get your perspective as a as a man who who did it, and yeah. I've I've heard it's really intense. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, obviously I I do well, not obviously anymore because I've probably put on a bit of weight, but like I used to hit the gym reasonably often, and it's a whole different. Um, like aura in the gym it's a lot of dudes it's a lot of like quite literally flexing (laughs) you know and uh then you go into bar and it's just great people uh there's no pretense and everyone's really helpful and you can just relax in a way that Mm. you can't you can't necessarily relax in a gym um because there's that all that sort of alpha very you know male kind of stuff around so uh, yeah fair enough yeah i liked bar i mean it's it's uh like you said, it's all legs. It's just like your legs shaking like crazy, and yeah. uh, and it doesn't matter how good you get at it, your legs will always shake if you're doing it right. Awesome. Like it's, yeah. So it's definitely more challenging than you think. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, once I'm uh, once I'm fully recovered, once this campaign's <laughs> over, are we gonna bro out over some bar? Or are we gonna yeah, do this? That's a great idea. So <laughs> we'll take a photo to prove that. That'd right. be awesome. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. All We're right, gonna good. do it. Um, how do people? Learn obviously you have the 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 blog Five yeah. Kids One Condo, but how do people learn more about your candidacy or uh, reach out to you if they if they have more questions? Uh, vote AdrianCrook dot com, A D R I A N C R O K. Vote AdrianCrook dot com. That's going to be like the number one place that has the most information. Um, built that little website myself. Thank oh yeah, you very much. Yes, totally. <laughs> you can do a lot with WordPress skins these days. Totally. Uh, and then social media like at Adrian Crook or at Five Kids One Condo on Twitter. Both those are our Twitter handles, or just at Adrian Crook on Instagram. I'm like, I'm way too addicted to Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and then on Facebook, I think it's like uh, Vote Adrian Crook again um, is the official Facebook page. So cool. All over the place, really. Probably just Google is your friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, on that note. 
Adrian, uh, I really want to thank you for being here. I appreciate the candor. I appreciate you being very open. Um, again, it's it's easy to sit on the sidelines and criticize and, and say what should be done, but you just like all the other candidates are are risking your your good name <laughs> and your sanity or not so good name. <laughs> no, it's the, a good name. It's a good name. <laughs> Crook. <laughs> you're 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 risking your good name and your sanity to be in this election. And uh, I want to commend you and I want to wish you all the best in this election. So oh, thanks, thanks a lot, Mo. I really appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, he has five kids in one condo. He's bus dad and he's running for Vancouver City Council as an independent. He is Adrian Crook. And I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>